Now, here's the key. You need to pay attention to these cause and effect statements. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he likewise shared in their humanity. That seems obvious. So that. Why? So that. Through death, because every other human is just going to die and stay dead, through death, he could destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Why did he become a human? Because humans lost our ruling and subduing to the devil. So the devil is the one that has to be defeated to take it back. But only a human can take it back. So Jesus became a human because we're humans. To die the death that humans are meant to die, but to do what the humans cannot do. Come back to life and destroy death and the devil who has the power over death so that we can live. That's the first reason. Now, these aren't the only reasons. We could probably go on and on and on forever for all the reasons why Jesus became a human. But these are the first of a couple that he's going to point out specifically. So only a human can really take back the rulership, but a human can't conquer death. So Jesus does it. That's why he became human. And to set free those who were held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death. Romans 6 says you were enslaved to sin and death. In fact, you were enslaved so much that you wanted nothing else but then want to sin. I, was, I can never say the name right. Is that Stockholm's disease? Where that girl got kidnapped by somebody? Yeah, syndrome, and she began to identify herself with the kidnapper, and when their parents finally found her and rescued her, she didn't want to go back to them, and she wanted to go back to her captives. It's the battered wife syndrome, where she'll call the cops, and when the cops finally show up, she'll defend her husband. She feels like there's nothing left. If you ever talked um, to people in um, international justice ministries, they free people from the sex slave trade industry, and they'll tell you that the first thing they got to do is spend weeks upon weeks in very intensive therapy to convince them that they don't need to go back to that life before they can even counsel them with all their trauma. They have to counsel them to the point because they find that many of them will get rescued and they love being rescued, but then they don't feel like they belong there and they want to go back to their old life of sex slave trade. And that's what Romans is saying. That's you. You're a sinner. You're so enslaved to sin and death that you fear it. You know nothing else. When something else presents itself like God, you want nothing to do with God because all you've ever known is sin and that's what you want to go back to. And so Jesus didn't just destroy death for you. He destroyed your fear of your captivity to sin and your desire to constantly go back into sin because it's all you ever know and that's all you ever want to do. Therefore, for the first time ever, you not only are freed from it, but now you can begin to be transformed by the renewing of your mind and have a desire to actually put on the new man and put off the old man and become a new creature in Christ. If he just defeated death, we would go right back again over and over again. And you know how you know you would do that? Because even with the Holy Spirit and a new desire, we still do it. But the fact that you even have a desire to say, I am so sorry, God, I don't want to keep going back to that. I want something more. That's the second thing that Jesus did by defeating death. He defeated the chains. 
even the imaginary chains that we wrap ourselves in that death has. That's what he feared. Not just death, but fear and enslavement as well. The desire to go back again. That's what Jesus did. And so every single time you sin, yes, you should feel guilty. Yes, you should go to the throne of repentance. Yes, you should beg the Holy Spirit to take over and transform you so you won't be there again. But you should also praise God that the fact that you feel shame, the fact that you have a desire to be different, that comes from Jesus and the cross as well. That comes from Jesus and the cross as well. Now, why did Jesus have to be the God-man? We've kind of already hinted on this, but I want to specifically like emphasize it together now. One, he had to be God because only God can defeat the death, the grave, the devil. No human can do that. All right, so only God can defeat death, the grave, and the devil and come back to life again. No other human can do that. And only God can live a sinless life to be worthy of taking death upon himself and representing everybody in order to pay for the sins. You see, when you die, your death, your eternal death is what's necessary to pay for all your sins. Your sins are so horrible that you have to stay dead for all eternity. Now, death is not just physically being separated from your body and going somewhere else. Death is separation from God. Death is separation. So there's physical death, which is where your soul is separated from your body, which is not good. Even when you go to heaven and you no longer have sin and you're in the presence of God Almighty, you're still separated from your body and God meant you to be body and soul. So there's going to be a whole different kind of death you're experiencing. Don't get me wrong. Heaven's going to be awesome. And you're going to be in the presence of the Almighty living God with no sin, no divide, no disconnect between you and Him. But you're still dead. And dead is still a part of the curse. And you're still separated from your body that God never meant for you to be separated from your body. This is why Paul didn't ultimately look forward to being in heaven. He ultimately looked forward to his glorification resurrection. Because without the resurrection, our salvation is not complete. Because with the resurrection, now I'm no longer separated from God, but I'm also no longer separated from my body. And so the second death is separation from God, spiritual death. And the third death is being separated from God for all eternity. So, when you die your physical death, you have to stay externally separated from God forever to pay for your sins. That's why there's no coming back from death to be with God. Which means when you die, all your eternal death pays for your sins, so you have no more dying left over for anybody else's sins. But if Jesus, who is God, can live a sinless life... He doesn't have to pay for his sins. So when the eternal God is separated from God, he eternally pays for your sins. And I don't know how that works. I mean, God didn't, Jesus didn't stay dead for all eternity because he was raised. But at the same time, he is an eternal God who was never... I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to be God and then God be separated from God. And whatever, death... I mean, that's, we think of physical death, but you have to realize it's emotional death. The death of the Trinity, so to speak, not literally, but separation, that we can even begin to comprehend because we were born into death from separation from God, let alone to be God and separate from God. 
And he was an eternal God, which means somehow he experienced an eternal death, even though it was only a moment. I don't know how that works, and I don't really care to understand. I just know it is, and thank God for it, because he has enough death to pay for all people's sins, because only God could be sinless and do that. So those are the two reasons why the Messiah had to be God. Now, why did he have to be a human? He had to be a human because only a human can die for the sins. An animal obviously proved that it wouldn't do it because they had to keep killing animals. An angel can't do it. And if you believe in aliens, they can't do it. It has to be a human. A human sinned, a human fell, a human chooses every day to go against God. So only a human, it's a trial of your peers, can actually pay the price for that. So he had to be human. But he also had to be human because only a human can die. Now, there's all kinds of illustrations of how Jesus, God, as a human, died, but he didn't die because he's God, and I don't know. And how he can sin, not sin, but also be tempted to sin. We'll talk about that a little bit later. I don't know how all that works. But what I do know is this. Only a human can die, and only a human can represent your sins, but only God can defeat death, and only God can live a sinless life. And so here's the thing. If you go into somebody and somebody denies the Godhood of Jesus, they have no salvation. Because there's no... You're, then you're left with animal sacrifices and they don't pay for your sins. Because that's why they still have a Day of Atonement every single year. You, and you don't have a sinless human. So, but if you deny the humanity of God, which is... Then you have nobody who represents us. And then you still have no salvation. So what if God lived a sinless life, and died and came back again. He didn't represent you. You're not God. So you're still lost. And this is why John makes it so important. You must confess that Jesus is the Christ who came in the flesh as the Son of God. Because you have no salvation without it. You have no hope. And so this is the beauty of Christ. You see, this is why no one has ever come close to fulfilling all these things. You have to be David's son. You have to be Adam's descendant. You have to be God. You have to be a human. You have to be a shepherd. You have to be... I mean, I think this is what Lee Strobel said. Like, if you took all, you took the quarters and threw a bunch of quarters in the state of Texas and filled it up three miles high and threw one red quarter in the midst of it, the chances of somebody fulfilling all the prophecies of Christ is picking that red coin out the first time. And Jesus did it in a way that we can't even... Even this is uncomprehensible. Verse 16. Now, the other reason he had to become a human was to experience humanity. The third reason is God doesn't know what it's like to suffer. God doesn't know what it's like to be tempted. Our God says, I'm not tempted. I cannot be tempted. God doesn't know what it's like to want to, but not want to. And we're going to unpack that a lot more because that's the point of Hebrews 4, that he was tempted in all ways, in all points of the scale, yet without sin. So we're going to hold off on that one for chapter 4. But that's the other thing. He had to be human to experience humanity so that when you're suffering and your life is miserable and you're experiencing persecution, when you're experiencing pain, when you're experiencing temptation, when you're experiencing rejection, Christ can say, I know exactly what that feels like. And give you empathy. God can give you sympathy. 
And there are some things that God can't do. And he can't give you empathy. And thank God that he can't, because I don't want a God who knows what it's like to sin. I don't want a God who knows what it's like to be tempted. I don't want a God who knows what it's like to suffer and be weak. I don't want a God who knows what it's like to have to obey somebody. I mean, I know we say God can do everything, but some things he can't, because it violates his character. And thank God for that. So Jesus becomes the tempted, the suffering, the obedient, to know that. But once again, we'll unpack that. We're getting ahead of ourselves. So um, we'll get to that later. My wife always jokes because I say that all the time. We'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. (laughs) So, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in things relating to God to make atonement for sins. Oh, sorry. Back up. Verse 16. For surely his concern is not for angels, but he is concerned for Abraham's descendants. He did not die for angels. Angels are not redeemable. Okay, I already made that point last week. We get to Revelation, and it says that the angels, the, 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 the believers at the throne, were singing a song that the angels could not learn. And what is the song that they're singing? Worthy is the Lamb who has shed his blood and redeem all people from all nations. Angels can't learn that song. Now, that's interesting, because that says something about praise in God. Because, what do you mean angels can't learn a song? I mean, they can't memorize those lyrics. It's like they, they see the lyrics and they just go, I can't memorize this. Because that's what we think they can't learn the song. They just can't get that beat or that tune down, but they can get every other beat and tune down. It gives a whole definition, new definition to learning a song. It means that to learn a praise song is not just about learning the music and learning the words. It's about learning the heart and the thankfulness that goes behind the words. If you're just singing words and you don't know what they mean and you don't feel anything, you haven't learned the song and you're not really singing it. And the point is the angels can memorize the lyrics. They can memorize the tune. But they cannot learn the song because they don't know what it's like to be redeemed. There's no experience there. And that's what it means to learn songs. And we know that angels can be redeemed because when they rejected God, they rejected God in full knowledge of who He was in His presence. This is why Paul makes the point when Adam and Eve sinned, they sinned in ignorance and innocence. This is why we can be redeemed because we're being redeemed back to something that we don't know. We don't know God like the angels. Therefore, when we reject Him and sin against Him, we're not fully rejecting God in His entirety. Therefore, there's something to redeem us back to. But angels, they rejected him in his fullness, which means there's nothing new that they can learn or know than to accept or reject again. And so his concern wasn't for angels. He came and became a human for us. I mean, you look in the culture and angels, Greek mythology and all this, angels are awesome. They're supernatural beings. They can do things that we can't do, and yet God didn't come for them. So God didn't come for those who were the wealthiest, the most powerful, the most supernatural, the most amazing, the most superhero. He came for the ones who needed the most, the most pathetic, the most vile, the most sinful, the most wretched, the most lost, the most forsaken. So Jesus said, I haven't come for the healthy, I've come for the sick. His concern was for us. 
And so that's very important, the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he could become a merciful high priest in things relating to God to make atonement for sins for the people. Why? So that he could give you mercy. That's that third part. It's going to be unpacked more in chapter 4. But if I don't know what it's like to be in your shoes, it's hard for me to be compassionate and merciful towards you. It's very easy for me to just say, get over it. And if I at least am loving enough to not say that, I still may be probably thinking it. But once I've suffered like you have, once I've gone through what you've gone, then I can say, I'm so sorry. And actually put up with your misery, your whining, your complaining, your, your whatever, because now I understand it's not just, oh my gosh, you go on. Now I know exactly. And that's what he's saying. He's going to unpack that a lot in chapter 4, but the point is, so he could become merciful. And, and, and not that God wasn't merciful over here, because here's what's really cool. Nowhere ever in the First Testament is a high priest ever called faithful or ever called merciful. The only being that's ever called faithful or merciful in the First Testament is God. So it's not saying that God wasn't merciful or faithful until Jesus came along and became a human. He's doing two things here. He's saying that if Jesus is merciful and faithful, and that's only ever been used of God, then here's another way that Jesus is also God that I'm making to you. But he's also taking it further and saying that you're able to receive even more, a double portion of mercy and faithfulness, because Jesus now knows what it's like to be human. It's not that God couldn't never do that, is that God can do it to a much greater extent now without sounding blasphemous. I mean, you always walk in dangerous ground when you say, God can't. But the author of Hebrews is saying that. Jesus became a human so that we could receive mercy, implying that there's something more that we weren't able to get in the First Testament. And what is that? You weren't able to walk into the full presence of God Almighty and have a face-to-face conversation with Him because even though he would show you mercy and he would free you from physical death and he overlooked David's sin and said, you're not going to die, I'll let you live after what you did to Bathsheba and Uriah. That's mercy. David should have died. Israel should have been wiped off the face of the earth after the golden calf, but he only killed 3,000 and he let the rest live and go on. That's mercy, that's compassion. But that still was only a mercy and compassion when it came to physical death. He could not usher anybody into the presence of God without Christ. So there's an extra dose of mercy going on there. In every respect, for since he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. God can help you. God is called our helper. God is called the ever-present helper who walks next to your side. I mean, this is what's so cool. Yahweh is, I am the ever-present helper who walks next to your side. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with you. The Holy Spirit is Pericles, the one who goes along your side. They're all with you. But somehow there's an extra dose of mercy, of understanding that's thrown in there. There's this one comment, kind of commentator says, how did this all happen? I don't know, but it just did. I mean, some things are worth explaining. Some things you just chalk up to the mystery of God. So, the angels didn't do this for you. And Jesus didn't do it for the angels. He did it for you. And so He is God. 
in chapter 1, and he is man in chapter 2. And only as the God-man can he truly be the Redeemer of us. This is the foundation for everywhere else he's going in the book of Hebrews. Now, application. We're not going to do a lot of application. And the reason is this. We're so quick to get into application all the time, but a lot of times if you read the books of the Bible, they don't apply it. We're not going to get real application until chapter 10. Because here's the thing. I think too often we jump into application too quickly. And we haven't even fully understood the concept. How can you apply something that you don't fully understand? Now, to a certain extent, you'll never completely fully understand everything about God, so you've got to start applying it somewhere. But at the same time, you've got to at least let the author of Hebrews finish his argument. And so we're not going to do a whole lot of application until chapter 10 because it's going to take him 10 chapters to finish his argument. Therefore, he can't really start applying something until the argument's finished. And so you need to hold on for the application. But at the same time, he does give us a little... I mean, hopefully right now you feel like there's been a lot of application already. But right now we just need to meditate on the awesomeness of Jesus before we can really start saying, how does this relate to my life? Because if I don't meditate on his awesomeness, then I don't really know how to fully invest him into my life and make him a part of me and transform me. And so sometimes the application is just meditating on, wow, so that you can make a part of it. So, But I will mention some things. First is this. You say, okay, for the Jew, that makes sense. They are steeped in the First Testament. But for us today... What person actually really truly knows the First Testament very well? What person is really talking about angels? I mean, how can this really speak to anybody today? Well, it can. First, even today, if you go into the Eastern world, angels are incredibly significant. Nothing has meaning unless an angel spoke it or was there for it. Look at the First Testament. Angels next to God when he shows up to Abraham. Angels next to Moses when he's given the law. Angels next to Isaiah when he's given his calling in chapter 6. Angels next to Daniel when he's seen the vision. Even in Revelation with Jesus Christ, you've got angels next to John interpreting things for him. Angels just gives things credibility. If I come to you and say something, it's one thing, but if there's an angel standing next to me, you're going to believe me a whole lot more. <laughs> Muhammad in 570 around 6, actually 610, sitting in a cave meditating. And what comes to him? An angel. Now he immediately went home, thought a demon was visiting him. It was his wife that convinced him to go back and listen to it because it was God's angel. And then he wrote down everything it said, and it became the Quran. Mormonism. An angel Morani came to Joseph Smith and gave him the golden tablets that became the Book of Mormon. Mar religions today, angels, or Hinduism. All the Vedas of Hinduism are from angels. You go on Oprah, and they're visiting angels. Rhonda Byron, the secret from the Oprah, the New Age movement, angels gave it to them. Harry Potter, she was visited by an angel and given the story. Twilight, she was visited by an angel and given the story, a twilight. You can go on and on and on and on. How many movie directors have said, an angel came to me and I wrote it down and this is the movie now? You'd be surprised how many movies and TV shows came from angels. It's touched by an angel. Angels are valid. So even if you come to the Western world, okay, the movie Ghost, Angels in the Outfield, Touched by an Angel, Heaven Can't Wait, 
We could go on and on and on with this obsession with angels in our movies. Or angels are constant. Michael, the preacher's wife. These, all these movies. The Cary Grant movie was... I forget, I'm going blank on them. But he, Cary Grant was in a movie about angels. And we, there, you, I wrote down in the notes at least probably 20 movies that I just thought of the top of my head without even going to the internet. How many movies we have where angels are helping kids play baseball, where angels is helping you guide yourself to your peace with your girlfriend or something and finding the meaning of life and all this kind of stuff. Hollywood is obsessed with angels guiding us into serendipity. And yet nowhere do they ever talk about Jesus or God. And when they do, they're making fun of him or bashing him. And so even today, our culture is obsessed with an angel coming and visiting you. I mean, Oprah and Montel and all those shows, people said an angel came to them, and everybody's like, oh. As if that has validity. Guardian angels, which there's no biblical evidence for. And the reality is we're obsessed with these angels, as is, even in our culture, even our atheistic Scientific culture. Look at the movies. You think atheism dominates the world? It doesn't. You watch the movies, the horror movies, the paranormal movies, the angel movies, the supernatural movies. Every Cinder Bullock movie practically has something spiritual there. This is what dominates our culture. And there's always some kind of an angel or a spirit or a visitation or some kind of inner voice that comes to them. And somehow everybody in the audience is supposed to say, well, then there must be truth. And yet, nowhere is God mentioned, nowhere is Jesus mentioned. The author of Hebrews comes in and says, Jesus is better. No matter what that angel said, no matter what that spirit has said, the Son of God has spoken the new covenant. And it is better. It trumps the angels. And even today in our culture, with all of our movies, that still speaks. You may be tempted to skip the angel part and go on to something else in Hebrews. But this still speaks. I don't care what the angel said to you. I don't care what that spirit said to you last night. I don't care that a spirit wrote that book, A Course in Miracles. Jesus is better than angels. Because to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand? To which of the angels did God say, bow down and worship? To which of the angels ever came down and became a human and suffered and died for you? To which of the angels ever stands in your midst and says, I'm not ashamed to be with you? Every angel ends up leaving. Jesus came and lived with you, and even when he ascended, he put his Holy Spirit in you. To which the angels ever said that. And so Jesus is better than the angels, even today in our American culture. He's still far superior to all those messages, all those feel-good things, all those visitations. And the cool thing is, those angels contradict themselves. But the Word of God never has. Oh yeah. Believe me, if an angel is coming and talking to you, Today, most of the time, it's demonic. Now, I'm not saying angels do come. Hebrews is going on to say, you've entertained angels and not even known it. I'm not saying that. But most of the time, when anybody says an angel came to me, immediately assume demonic. But, if you want to test it, well, then John in Deuteronomy gives you some tests. And they have to pass it. And one of the first things is, you must confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came in the flesh. Every single angel I've ever heard spoken, not me personally, but in any religion or any Oprah show, that's the first thing they say. There is no death or judgment, and you are your own God. 
And Christ came to help you discover that. It's usually the first thing. In fact, when people have visitation from aliens, that's what aliens say too. Which kind of makes you question what aliens really are. Yeah, so the reality is, the minute somebody says that, you automatically know it's not true. So there are tests for the spirits. But Jesus is better. Because he is the Davidic son, the son of Adam, the descendant of Abraham, and the God-man who is king and priest. He's a lot of things. Lord, I thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for how amazing you are. Give us the ability for our minds to start wrapping it around it. And then I pray that these truths would root themselves deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.